Psalm 89, we're going to read just one verse at this time. Psalm 89, 14. There's nothing like the Word of God. It can't be compared to anything else. And every time we come to church, every time we come to Sunday school, uh, Bible study, whatever it may be, your own private reading time, that we would set ourselves under the authority of the Lord's Word, ask God to speak to us, believe God to speak to us, and lay hold on it. We're not reading a sports illustrator. We're not reading the newspaper. We're going to God and His living Word. And He wants to speak to our hearts through it. Amen? Psalm 89, 14. The justice and judgment are the habitation of Thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before Thy face. And I want to read a little comment that, uh, commentary that I was reading on this verse. It says, The government of God is based upon justice, judgment, mercy, truth, and righteousness. Amen? Aren't you glad that the government of God is based upon that and not all the other things of man that it could be based upon? He knows what is right. He sees what is right. And He does what is right. Without exception. He cannot permit any breaking of His law without proper punishment, nor can He permit one good act to go without just and proper reward. I just thank the Lord that His His habitation of His throne is justice and righteousness, righteousness and judgment. When when uh, Abraham was pleading with God for his nephew Lot, God had come down and appeared to Abraham in an angelic uh, manifestation and said, "We're about to go uh, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The cry of Sodom has come up to us, and their sin and iniquity has reached to heaven, and I've come to destroy them." And Abraham beseeched God knowing this truth about the Lord. He beseeched Him on this basis and premises. He knew his nephew Lot lived there with his family. And his nephew would be destroyed and all that he had with him. So he beseeched Him and said, Shall not the judge of the earth, of all the earth, do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He knew that about the Lord. He was putting it back in God's uh, ballpark, so to speak, in His court. And, and the Lord said, no, I won't destroy the wicked, I mean the righteous with the wicked. And I won't destroy the righteous as though they were wicked. And Lot and his family were spared miraculously. But that is a uh, wonderful attribute about the God we serve. This justice. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The justice of God. He, he reigns with a perfect justice. He's not a crooked judge. He doesn't, he's not perverted in His judgment. His justice is a true justice and it comes from Him alone. It doesn't arise from good people or moral people or the United States or something like that. It arises from God. It's based on God. It comes from the Lord. It's, he's the perfect lawgiver and the perfect judge who alone judges righteously. When our Lord Jesus Christ was reviled, it says He reviled not again, but did what? Committed Himself unto Him who judges righteously. And I'm putting this... And I'm putting myself in my plight and my everything that befalls me at this moment. Of course, he came for that purpose, but he, he didn't wasn't listening to the the accusations that were hurled against him and the blasphemies. He come, when he was reviled, he re, he committed himself to him who judges righteously because he's a just God, and he reigns in perfect justice. And man. Men talk much about justice. There's a lot of talk about justice in our day. There are bumper stickers about justice. There's talk all over billboards about justice. But it's man's justice that they're speaking of. And it's uh, spoken. men claim to be so concerned about justice for their fellow man and so forth. And yet without Jesus Christ, there is no true justice. There's just one corrupt man trying to say what's just and, and bring about justice. The sermon may be a little... Uh, different this morning, but it's what God gave me. I want to talk to you about the justice of God. It's not a perverted justice. Man's justice is not just. Man's justice, okay? Even good men, even the best of men, you would have to say are imperfect in their uh, dispensation of justice. But putting it out there and, and reigning justly in some way. Although a believer, a true born-again man or woman, the Bible, Jesus said, don't judge after the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. There is a righteous judgment. We can walk in it, but it arises from God and it comes from God. It doesn't come from men and it doesn't come from good men. It comes from the Lord. How many of you know that men can and do pervert justice? 
and judgment. They pervert it. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit. I'm not just talking about the crooked judge who is, you know, taking a bribe. Okay, that's obvious and that's blatant. They're just a crooked judge. They have no pretense of really being just. But that's, that's prevalent as well. What I do want to talk about is the way that men, men can pervert justice. And I see it primarily in two ways. Not just the crooked judge, but in people that would uh, have some type of pretense of being just and, and moral, and so to, so to speak like that. I see it uh, that the harsh one way would be this. How can a man pervert justice? It would be a hard and a harsh, unmerciful judgment. It would be uh, uh, unmerciful in its demands that are placed upon others. And I just want to read a scripture. Jesus said, uh, He said, Woe unto you, also ye lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves t- touch not the burden with one of your fingers. To me, that would be, not be the justice of God, though they had the laws of God. The laws weren't bad, they were bad. You understand what the people were in their administration of the laws. And so he says, what you, you lawyers, you Jewish lawyers, and I know they're the easy target. The Pharisees are an easy target. We'll talk about that. But what they were doing for the most part in Jesus' day, and they were lading men with burdens, other men with burdens. They're putting burdens on people. Grievous to be born, he says. And that they themselves didn't lift a burden with one finger. Now that would be someone... <clears throat> Claiming to be just, we have the judgment of God. We have the justice of God. We have the laws of God. We're the priests. We're the Pharisees. We're the Sadducees. We're the lawgivers. And so forth. And yet, it was an unjust because it was unmerciful. No compassion. It was very rigid. And, and it was of their own doing. It was their own standards and not God's. I'll, I'll read another scripture here. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, Jesus said. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it's amazing how uh, in Christ those two are met. It's amazing how the Lord, the Lord can be perfectly just and perfectly compassionate and merciful at the same time without compromising either one. Amen. He can be perfectly holy and hold to His holy standards that He's given. Old Testament, New Testament, throughout and not compromise that in any way. Be perfectly merciful and forgiving and gracious and kind and loving to sinful people and not compromise either one of those. He doesn't compromise His love. He doesn't compromise His justice. He's not perverting it in any way. And, and there's a Scripture, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 85.10 if you're taking notes. Mercy and truth are met together. Amen. How are they met together? Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is in Jesus Christ. This is in His coming to the earth. And He says that mercy and truth are met together. And so these lawgivers, these lawyers in Jesus' day might have had the law and they dispensed it out, but they themselves were not necessarily partakers of being under that burden. And they also, don't forget this, the the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Now we're talking about how men can claim to be just and not be just. One of the perversions. Harsh and rigid, rigid, unmerciful judgment. The, the, the Pharisees in, in Jesus' day had taken a lot of uh, had taken a lot of the their own commandments and added it to the commandments of God. He said, "You teach for commandments the doctrines of men." Well, doctrines of men are not God's commandment. So they had the law, but they added to it, and they came up with their own thing that seemed right to them. And they put it on people, and it was a weight. People were striving under it. That's why Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Amen. They're laboring in their sin. They're also laboring and toiling, trying to be righteous by their good deeds or their, their obedience to the law, perhaps. And they couldn't do it. And uh, so judgment and justice can be perverted in those ways. I think about the woman caught in adultery. It's a kind of unique thing. One woman caught in the sin. you got two groups, though. She's in the middle. The, the lawyers and the Jewish people brought her to Jesus and said this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. That's a fact. There's no getting around it. She was guilty of breaking the law of adultery. Okay? That was a God, one of God's law. He didn't have to compromise that law to be merciful to her though. He said, uh, after he wrote in the sand, he said, which of you is without sin cast the first stone? He looks up and they were gone. 
See, the law wasn't wrong. They were wrong. The law was still the law. And it was right. God still, even though we're not under the law, God still feels the same about sin and adultery, for example. Okay? He hasn't, doesn't compromise that. But He can be merciful at the same time. And so, uh, Jesus, went, I'll give you some more examples of this. When the disciples were on the Sabbath day, they were hungry. The disciples are walking with the Lord and they go through a, a field and they pick the grain or the corn off and they begin to eat it. Innocent thing, they're hungry, they're eating. God understood that. You understand what I'm saying? That the Pharisees had made it to where that was work and they're breaking the law of the Sabbath. So they're walking through and they're picking the, the grain and they're eating it. The Pharisees take issue with that. You see what I'm saying? They had a problem. We're talking about how they would, in a harsh manner, pervert judgment and justice. And the, and the Lord says, hey look, the, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He got it. He understood it. Okay. Same thing, there's a, there's a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Pharisees never helped him or healed him. Okay, I'm not going to blame him for that. I'm simply saying when the Lord was there, He had compassion on him. He healed the man with a withered hand. His hand was restored. It was on the Sabbath day. Instead of the Pharisees rejoicing that the man was healed and Christ was among them, they, they said, uh, this man can't be of God. He healed somebody on the Sabbath. He did work on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, look, which of you, if you had an ox, one of you Jews, if you had an ox that fell in a ditch on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you reach down there and lift him out? How much more this child of Abraham He's got a withered hand and I want to heal him today. And God wants to heal him and restore him. And so, again, it's not that the laws were wrong. Some of them were because they're the ones that man created, but the law that God gave. It's not that the law was wrong. It's that they were wrong. Their sense of justice was wrong. Their hearts were wrong in all of these. Now, I want to talk about this for just a moment. These Pharisees and Sadducees uh, that Jesus dealt with and He rebuked. And if you read through the Gospels, he rebuked them more severely than anybody that we that we read about these confrontations that he had, and so uh, they're an easy target. They were unbelievers, and it was an easy target for us today to say those Pharisees. What well, lost people can ridicule the Pharisees and badmouth the Pharisees. There are Christians that badmouth the Pharisees and so forth. And their behavior, yes, I understand that, but I think that we we even see in churches. Christians labeling other Christians, you're a Pharisee. You're a legalist. And we have to be careful of that. And I'll tell you why. That's not a valid comparison. I'll tell you why. It's not, I don't believe it's a valid comparison. These Pharisees were lost. That's a pretty big distinguished uh, you know, uh, character that we need to distinguish. They were lost men. Not every Pharisee. Some came to know the Lord. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was a high priest. He was a believer. His wife Elizabeth. There were godly priests and godly Jews. Few and far between, but they were. But these that Jesus dealt with uh, were lost men. They weren't Old Testament saints. They weren't New Testament believers. They weren't followers of the Lord in any way. Jesus said, you're of your father the devil. So for a Christian to say another Christian, you're a, leg Chris, you're a, you're a legalist. You're a Pharisee. I need to be careful of that. Because what did these people didn't know the Lord? He said, "If you'd have known my Father, you'd know me." Know me. He said, "You travel the world, or, uh, the seas, to make one proselyte, and once you've made him, you made him twice the son of hell that you are, son of hell." They weren't believers. He said, "You're going to receive the greater damnation." They weren't born again. We need to be careful. That's thrown around a lot in this grace, the hyper grace movement that's going on today. People throwing around that everybody that believes God and strives to be holy and strives, strives to live uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance to God's Word, they're labeled by many as being a Pharisee and a legalist. And under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, I'm not. I'm under the blood of Jesus. But there's a lot of things God tells me in His Word for believers how I'm to live. And I'm not a Pharisee because I believe the New Testament and what God's called me to do. And so we have to be careful. Those Pharisees, for the most part, they were lost. The Lord even said, oh, it said in, in, uh, Stephen said in his sermon in Acts, he says, he's speaking to the Jews, he says, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. They didn't keep the law. They claimed to, but they didn't keep the law. 
So there was a perversion of justice in this sense that they were hard, they were harsh, and they were also hypocritical because they themselves didn't put themselves under the same bondage that they put men under. Okay? That's one perversion of justice of God that could appear to be very godly. We have the law. It's God's word and so forth. Yet it's unmerciful when the Lord is merciful. As I said, He doesn't have to compromise His holy law or standards or covenant with men in Christ. He doesn't have to compromise any of His holiness in order to be merciful and loving and kind. He did it through His Son, Jesus. Mercy and truth have kissed together. I thank the Lord for that. Amen? And the next way that I see, and this to me is more dangerous, it's more seductive, and it's more prevalent. I don't honestly see that many Pharisees. What, what people would call Pharisees today. I know that there are those out there. But among the true church of Jesus Christ, I tell you what I do see more of in the church world today, they might be truly born again or might not be, is the second type of perversion of justice, which I would call a compromising or lax or soulish type of justice. It's a sense of justice, I'm putting quotes around it, which arises out of man's own humanity. We're calling it justice. We're doing it all in the name of the Lord. And it really arises out of man's own humanity and carnality and emotions. Uh, it, it's a type of, quote, justice that will seek by name to magnify the grace of God while just glossing over sin that's unrepented of. God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He forgives the sinner. He delivers the sinner from their sin and the power of sin when we come to Him. He doesn't gloss over sin and give it a little wink and act like it's okay. All in the name of love or grace or justice. He doesn't do that. Jesus died for something, didn't He? He died for the sins of the world. That's every sinner that's out there, whether we love them or like them or they're our friends or strangers or whatever, whether they're vilest or we consider the vilest sinner or a good old boy. He died for their sins. Unless they repent, unless they're born again, they're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. It's not for me to pervert it and change it and make it something it's not. But we see this in our day in churches in the name of God that it's, uh, that it's really a, a lax. It's a compromising. It's this easy... We're calling it justice or we're, call, or we're calling it the love of God or the grace of God and allowing things to slide, so to speak, that God wouldn't allow to slide. It doesn't allow to slide. We're not doing anybody a favor by doing that. One day, they're going to stand before the Lord and they'll, then at that point, they'll be faced with the reality and with the truth. Wouldn't it be nicer and more loving to speak the truth and love to them now and tell them the truth? And so we see much of this, I believe, in the church world today. It's being promoted as very Christian. It's being promoted as very loving it's what Jesus would do and so forth. But it's actually very unchristian and it's contrary to God's justice. And as I said, I believe it's seductive and I believe it's dangerous because it's very appealing to people. Who wouldn't want to be just? How can you argue with that? Who wouldn't want to be loving and merciful and forgiving? We do. But they don't mean the same things as what the Scriptures mean by justice or love or mercy or forgiveness or repentance or redemption. They mean other things. And... Uh, I think it's, it's important that all believers in our day that we be spirit-led and doctrinal and biblical to understand. I've always likened it to this. You put on a pair of glasses. You know, if you're a 3D movie or something like that, those old-timey 3D glasses you put on in the movie was filmed in 3D. So when you put those little cheesy glasses on, it appeared like things were coming off the screen at you. And uh, we need to, as believers, live with our... Bible glasses on. Everything has to be seen through the lens of Scripture. It's not what I think is right, not what I think is just, what I feel is just today. That might change tomorrow. It's what God's unchanging Word says is just and righteous and holy and His standard. He knows how to judge uh, men and men's hearts and so forth. So we need to be led by the Spirit. We need to be biblical in determining things. Everything from who we vote for in an election to a, a hot issue or topic of the day, or a new movement in the church, or a new Christian book that's come out, or, or whatever it may be, we need to see it not through the uh, the pop, what's popular and what's swaying, and uh, you know how the rivers flowing today. We need to stand upon the rock 
Jesus Christ and His unchanging Word. Because this wind blowing every which direction, it's going to come. And the days in which we live, it's going to get more so. And I, I was Chuck and I were talking about some of this last night. One of the things that I don't think it's just a revelation I have, but I know it's something that the Lord did show me 20 years ago or more. Is the deception that is coming in the last days. The Bible does speak of a last times in times deception, right? There's nothing new under the sun. There's always been deceptions. Adam and Eve were deceived. The woman was deceived anyway. And and uh, and but it's a characteristic of the time nearing the return of the Lord. The rapture and the, all the end times events and the tribulation. Take heed that no man deceive you. And so uh, there are going to be seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. People would depart from the faith. That means they were part of this thing called Christianity. Whether they're necessarily born again or not, I don't know, but they they held to Christian beliefs and they departed giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. But I believe the end times deception besides people in churches on their hands and knees barking like dogs or gold dust coming down, which is obvious and blatant, and we could say, I'm not fooling, falling for that kind of garbage. The, the deception is going to be running very close and parallel to the truth. I'm going to be using grace. I'm going to be using uh, the love of God and the justice of God and so forth. But in your spirit and according to the Word of God, rightly dividing the Word of God, we see this is not what God is saying. This is not God's truth. This is another, it's a lie, but it's boys running neck and neck. And if I wasn't on top of my game, so to speak, if I wasn't walking closely with Jesus myself, day by day, being filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, then and kind of got lax in my Christianity, just put it on autopilot, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven when I die, I love God, He knows I love Him, you know, and going about my life, then I will, I believe we would, all of us, be swept away in that. Not the gold dust and the barking like dogs, but in the stuff that looks very much like the real. An appeal for justice. But when you really dig into it and look at, is this what God's Word said, what's being promoted as justice and so forth. We have to watch it, y'all. And I believe this to me is more dangerous in our day than the, the Pharisee type of person, that, you know, the legalist going around and saying you're, you know, you're not dressed properly or this or that or the other. <clears throat> I actually see very little of that in our day. I see a lot more of a laxity and what I would call a carelessness uh, with the doctrines of God. And, and even Jesus said, my doctrine's not my own, it's my Father's who sent me. It's important to the Lord. When Paul told Timothy, and he's about to die, he's about to be beheaded for the Lord in 2 Timothy, he says, you better lay hold on that sound doctrine and stay with it. Stay with sound doctrine. You'd be surprised how many times in First and Second Timothy, Paul talks about doctrine, healthy doctrine, sound doctrine. It's simply what we believe. Doctrine is simply the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's important. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. But we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we know His truth and His word and what's of God by the Holy Ghost who indwells us and by the word of truth. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is true, he says. And so, it's very serious. And I believe that uh, somehow, these Christians, and, and you, you may have recognized what I'm talking about. I'm going to get into some examples here in just a minute. Uh, what I'm talking about. In the name of Jesus, or in the name of God, uh, we, want to, we want justice in society. We want this, and we want that. And it's, it's as though these people have found that they are more uh, loving and merciful and tolerant and just than Jesus is almost. I mean, seriously, they wouldn't say that. They don't want to really look at the, the words of the Lord or the Word of God. They just want this, this sense of, of love and forgiveness and justice for all men and so forth. And what they do, in, in fact, and they do it in the name of the Lord, but they bend His Word, they break His Word, they compromise His Word. Uh, and then, like, like I said, all those that really hold up God's Word as being the standard, this is my standard, I'm not going to be moved from it, then the others in the church world we're ridiculing and mock that one as being harsh and being a legalist and you're so judgmental and you have no grace. What well, true grace is not that grace. True grace is the grace of God. And the Bible says that 
um, the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. How about that? God's grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's a real grace of God. Okay? And so, but, but those that would hold up the Word of God, we'd be, we'd be considered old-timey or even worse, pharisaical, legalistic, hard, harsh, trying to please God in your flesh, trying to please God by your works. No, I'm saved by the grace of God. I live by the grace of God. I have been washed in the blood of Jesus and made new. But because of that, my, my Savior and my God has given me a life to live. And it's different than the life I used to live before. Here's the way. Walk in it. I don't want to walk in that way anymore. And He doesn't want me to walk in that way anymore. And I couldn't walk in His way if He didn't empower me to do it. It's not by might. It's not by power. But by my Spirit, saith the Lord hosts. He says, be strong. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. I don't claim that because I'm saved, I can do it perfectly. I claim that because I'm saved, God through me can live this life. If I'll yield to Him, if I'll walk with Him, if I'll grow in Him, I'm not any better than this over here, this person over here or this lost man over here. I have been saved by the grace of God and by His grace I am what I am. But I promise you, if it's the real grace of God, I won't be what I was. Amen. He's doing something in my life. And it's going to have a profound effect in my life and it will be more Christ-like. <laughs> there, is a, there is the fruit of the Spirit. It's real. If we abide in Him and His words abide in us, we'll, let, you know, we'll bear much fruit. Here is our Father glorified. And so... It is possible to do it. But we'll, we'll see that uh, in, in the Corinthian church, for example, and I'm going to start breaking down some examples and I'm going to read some current articles here in just a moment. In the Corinthian church, we've talked about in our Sunday school and repentance that in the, uh, in the first Corinthians where Paul had to rebuke his children in the faith, they were true Christians, they were carnal, they had all kinds of sin going on, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, they were having all this going on and they had the gifts of the Spirit manifest in their life. He never told them they weren't saved. He told them they were carnal. He told them they were immature. He told them they were babes. He told them they needed to repent. But one of the things they boasted themselves in was that there was a, 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 an adulterous, incestuous relationship going in, on in the church. People knew about it, were aware about it, and they, they didn't judge it and deal with it and they allowed them to come to church and just sit at the Lord's Supper and take of the Lord's Supper as though everything was fine. And they, they did it all under the pretense of look how gracious we are. Aren't we showing such grace to these sinners? That's the type of attitude I see in our world today. In the church world today. Like I said, are they true Christians or not? I'm not judging all that. Some probably really are. And some may not be. But the point is that they boasted in it as being this is a very godly characteristic we have. Look at us. We're being very great, gracious. I know they did because Paul says such boasting is not good. You're boasting in this. You ought to rather have judged them. They didn't say you ought to have hated them. Or say I'm glad they're, you know, or something like that. You should have judged it. I being present, Paul said, have already judged the matter. It's already judged. God's Word's already judged that. You're not being judgmental. God's already judged it. Be what God's called you to be and deal with it. Do it in compassion. Do it in love. Do it like you'd want it to be done to you. Do it biblically. Do it the way the Word of God says. But they were boasting. My point about this whole thing is that they were boasting and being so godly. And look how gracious we are. And, and Paul rebuked them for it. And like I said, praise God, they received it. And by the 2 Corinthians... They had done what they were supposed to, and guess what? It had the effect on the church members it was supposed to have, and they repented and were restored back into fellowship with the body. Isn't that beautiful? The sin's not beautiful, but God's forgiveness and mercy when a sinner repents is beautiful, and when the people of God handle it in a mature, godly way. Don't throw grace around as though it's some uh, cheap thing. It's not. It's not cheap at all. It's a holy thing. And God's grace is more than just making and letting things slide and saying, look how gracious I am. It's not. That's not what His grace is. Our standard for what is just and justice must be what God says is just. In His Word, what the Almighty declares as being justice. I want to give a definition of the word justice just so we know from the Bible. It means equity, the right, that which is altogether just and righteous. 
And the Bible says that righteousness and truth are the, like we open with, are the habitation of God's throne. Now, it's not for us, for you, for me, for people in the church, in the name of God, in the house of God, uh, to, to replace it or restate it or redefine God's justice some other way to what we think is more popular and acceptable in, to the world today or in the church world today. You see how that, that happens. That Christianity, all, uh, instead of being the standard that's unmovable in people, whether society's up or down at the time morally, and that Jesus and, and His people and His Word just standing rock solid, we'll see the church bending, stand a notch above society. That's not what we're called to be. He said, be holy as I am holy. Oh, you're so holy. You're holier than thou. And all the criticisms come. And it doesn't come from the world for the most part. It comes from other believers. They don't want to live like you want to live. They don't believe that's how we should live in our day. Oh, you're so offensive and Christian. You're the reason people don't get come to know the Lord and so forth. Because you're so holy and high and mighty. We ought to be holy and humble. We ought to be holy and kind. We ought to be holy and love sinners the way Jesus loves them. Because we're His instruments on the earth. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's ours. We've been given that. It's not given to an oak tree out there. It's given to born-again men and women. And we need to be Christ-like and kind and gentle and holy at the same time. You can do it. You can do it through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to show you where, where I believe the perversions come in. When, uh, when we begin to, to make our own sense of justice. And here, here, tell me, and I know you might not have heard this exact quote, but in a church leaders meeting or a group of pastors or a local church or even a family of Christians might say, um, church, wouldn't it make Christianity and Jesus what we have more appealing to the lost world if we would? And you kind of fill in the blank there. And I believe that's where the perversions come in. You can say, is the intent good? Maybe. You know, if you take it at base value, we want to make Christ more appealing to a lost world because we want people to come to know Jesus. We ought to know, want people to come to know Jesus. But don't you think the Lord knows how to save them? Doesn't He say His word salvation is of the Lord? Doesn't He say that God has chosen through the foolishness of preaching that men be saved? Doesn't God say that I'm not... Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. It is the power of salvation to all that believe. He, he knows how to save people through the preaching of His Gospel, lifting up Jesus, bringing conviction by the Holy Ghost to the sinner that they see this great, great, unspannable gap between what they are and what Holy God, the Holy Lord is and what He requires. And then mercy is offered and grace is offered and the cross is placed between them through the preaching of the Gospel. And they'll be clamoring to get up that cross saying, thank you, Jesus. Clamoring to fall at the foot of Jesus. Don't you think the Lord knows how to save men? But when a church council or a group of pastors or whatever, I could do it individually and say, you know what? I'm kind of tired of this Bible-thumping kind of Christianity. I'm getting ridiculed for it anyway and mocked for it anyway, even among other believers. Don't you think it would be more effective in our day, in this age, and the way society is and culture is, if we would do this? <coughs> whatever it is. And you fill in the blank. There's where the perversion of justice comes. Right there. Now, if in that, when that question was asked by a church council or a pastor or leaders or, or individual believers, if we would turn to the Word of God, then absolutely we'll find what we need. This is how we bring the Gospel. If we turn to God's Word and in prayer and be led by the Holy Ghost to go out there and preach His Word, maybe we are being unloving. You know what I'm saying? Maybe we're not reaching out to our community. I'm not saying that can't happen. It does happen. I'm saying... If we turn anything other than the Word of God and in prayerful turning to the Word of God on our faces before the Lord to hear His voice, then there's going to be a perversion no matter how Christian we make it seem. Oh yeah, everybody votes. I think we should do this. And then here, here you go. Here you go. You could take up some other path other than the biblical path that God has given us or the mandate that He's given us. And... Uh, what's going to happen if you leave that, then you're left with man's, quote, sense of justice. You know, to, to appeal to lost man and so forth. And y'all, I, uh, I believe that there are Christian movements 
and they include social justice and income equality, and, and it's as they define it, but it's not based upon the Word of God. It's, it's on uh, saving the environment in, a Christian, in the name of Christ, uh, punishing those that hurt the environment, open borders, giving in to the demands of ungodly groups and so forth. But the Bible says that, and they try to do it in all in such a Christian way. And we have to be careful of this. God is just. He knows how to be just. He doesn't change. If I'll stay with Him and hear Him and walk with Him and be conformed to His image by the working of the Holy Ghost in my life, I will be that. That'll, that'll be my characteristic. That will be our church's characteristic. That'll be our view when we look at people and we see them around us. Uh, I want to read this scripture. And, it, and that is a perversion, by the way, of the judgment of God. So I want to read this from Psalm God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Little g. Little gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. And so, uh, men can pervert justice. He says, how long are you going to judge ungodly and unrighteous judgment? And and Job, uh, it says in Job 8.3 that, uh, that the Lord pervert judgment. Does the Almighty pervert justice? No, He does not. But men in the name of the Lord can do it. Men in the name of the Lord can do it. And I want to read some of this. How many of you have heard the term liberation theology? Anybody heard just the term? Okay, if you haven't heard the term, we need to know what it is. If you haven't heard the term, you're going to recognize its characteristics when I start telling you about it. Liberation theology is uh, big and growing, and it's all in the quote, in the name of the Lord or God, or you know that kind of thing, and being good Christians and so forth. I want to read the definition. You can look it up. I just got this off the internet, but uh, you're going to recognize the the symptoms of it. I guess you would say. Here's the actual definition. Liberation theology, a synthesis or coming together of Christian and Marxist socioeconomic analysis that emphasizes concern for the poor and the political liberation for oppressed peoples. Can I ask you this? What, what possible synthesis can you have between Christianity and Jesus Christ and anything else, much less Christianity and Marxism? Marxism. Not hardly any type of government or system that's more ungodly and unholy and unchristian and totally puts God out of the picture than Marxism. And it says it's a synthesis of these things. Uh, it's a movement in Christian theology. This is why I'm pointing it out to you. Marxism, socialism, you know, communism, we know about all that. But this is a movement in Christian theology developed mainly by Latin American Roman Catholics that emphasizes liberation from social, political, and economic oppression. And, and that's, it's a movement. So I want to read a few more things here. The underlying theme is the transformation of everyday life, uh, transformation of everyday life through a new awakening of compassion, courage, truthfulness, and justice. They had to put their word in there. Nothing biblical about it. But they're going to say, don't you, Christian, don't you, don't you want to be just? You think it's just that this guy has less money than you do? You think it's just that, you know what I'm saying? They'll go on and on. But they're not going to the Bible for that. God knows how to take care of the poor. Oftentimes, He does it through His people. Okay? But my point is, it's an emphasis on that. It's a transformation, it says, of everyday life by this awakening. You know what it is? You heard the terms like paradigm shift and things like this. It's taken, here's Christianity. Let's say there's a kingdom of God and everything Christian under this little globe. It's taken it and sliding it over a little bit. We still all have all the same terminology and everything looks pretty familiar to us, but the whole thing's been shifted over. And it's not what it was before. And God's righteous holy standard and the Word of God and the truth is still right here. But this has all been shifted over. We still talk about God's holy standard and righteousness and truth and grace and so forth and take care of the poor. But it's all over here and it's not, it's not God. He's not in it. This was not of the Lord. But we did it in the name of the Lord. I want to read some more about this. Some of the books, when I went to this website, it's all over the internet about 
uh, liberation theology. It says, uh, there's a book called Spiritual Activism. It defines spirituality for a modern audience of all faiths. Now, would that make your ears perk up a little bit? It defines spirituality for a modern audience of all faiths. It draws from a rich spirituality and activism from the Bhagavad Gita, that's the, the Hindu book, Bible, from the Hebrew prophets, from Carl Jung, who was you know, just a psychologist, for social and environmental justice. This is what this sermon's about today, y'all. God is just. Okay, and I'm going to get back to a few more examples, but I don't want to just beat it, beat it to death, but God is just. If we're going to be just, we have to stay with what He says is just. Don't let a critic shame you and say, oh, you think you're so just and you don't want to help the poor. I'm going to help the poor, but I'm going to help the poor in accordance to God's Word. And when I bring them a biscuit to eat or a Happy Meal or a sweater to put on or something, I'm going to bring them the Gospel as well. And I'm going to tell them about Jesus Christ. And I don't owe it to them. The only thing I owe them is the Gospel. But to show the compassion of Christ, because his, of course His Word says, you know, if, if somebody comes to you and they're hungry or they don't have clothes, and you just say, go be filled and be warm and you don't help them and give them the things that are needful for the body, how does the love of Christ dwell in you? Certainly, we need to give those things as God enables and provides. There's no doubt about that. I'm not taking the opposite side of this thing. I am saying this is a perversion. This liberation theology is a perversion. Uh, can take on a lot of different faces. I'll give you some of the faces. Uh, uh, Anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian kind of movements in the church. Presbyterian Church USA, a few years ago, divested from anything that had to do with Israel because they're so anti-Palestinian and cruel and heartless, according to the Presbyterian Church. I don't believe that. Okay? But that would be an, a, a, a face that this liberation theology would take. Pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, because they're oppressing the Palestinians. So what are they doing? They're coming up with their own sense of justice, a morality, what's right and wrong, and in the name of God, they're going to impose that and act upon it. It is an activism, and it's not of God. Uh, you could see it with racial things like, you know, are there racial problems? Absolutely. But you'll see it in the name of Jesus, like, uh, or in the name of God or justice, uh, Different things like Black Lives Matter. You'll see anti-capitalism movements. You know, the Pope is big. I don't know he's lost, but my point is he's big in uh, socialists. He's big in promoting anti and condemning capitalism in a free market system. All in the name of God and helping the poor. You'll see it with pro-homosexual movements on college campuses. Christian college campuses that are saying little slogans and wearing the t-shirts and on their backpack that says, in the end, love wins. Well, that's wonderful. And they've got the <laughs> rainbow on it. That's not what the Bible says. It's a sin like another sin that needs to be repented of. It's not okay. Nor would it be okay to be a heterosexual living in fornication. The point is, love wins in the sense that uh, they want it to be that love just going to cover all that. It's all going to be okay. Your homosexuality is okay. I could just got to turn on one chapter in the Bible and find that it's not okay. And so we have to watch it. Uh, there's a billboard right here in Baton Rouge. I saw it on Jefferson Highway. Somebody, who are you to tell me who to love? It's a, it's a pro-homosexual kind of a movement. And so we see it, y'all. Uh, we see it all over. I want to read, read this. Simply put, liberation theology is a movement that attempts to interpret Scripture through the plight of the poor. So everything is looked at has this effect the poor. Not is it for God's glory, not is it obedient to the Word of God, not is it just, truly, holy, righteous, uh, uh, spirit-led. It looks at everything to interpret all the Bible through the plight of the poor. But Jesus said the poor you're going to always have with you. He didn't mean that cold-hearted. You know what he, I think He meant? You're always going to have an opportunity to help the poor because they're going to be around. And if anybody knows how to help them and take care of them, it's the Lord. I was thinking about Old Testament laws. Oh, you're so Pharisaical and legalistic. You know, in the the, the Lord told the in the Old Testament, he told the, the Jews, he said, if when you're uh, gleaning your fields and reaping the harvest, 
Don't reach the corners. Leave a few little spare grapes over there. And if you've already gone down this road and picked all the grapes, don't go back over, over a second time to see if you missed something. You know why? Because the poor are going to come in there, and I want them to come in there. And I want it, there'll be enough for them to live off of there. God cares for them and takes care of them. And He wants us to show that same love. But, but it's, the, it's this sense of justice that actually, uh, listen to this, it says that uh, this is more of an expose on it. And I thought this was a good point. It says, uh, He is a God, according to liberation theology, who favors the poor over those with wealth. First of all, who's to define who's got wealth and who's poor? And there's a lot of different uh, grades in between there, right? A lot of different levels between there. Maybe somebody was poor and now they're wealthy, and they were wealthy and now they're poor, or they're middle class, whatever. But according to liberation theology, God favors the poor over the wealthy. But I know in the Word of God that God uh, is no respecter of persons. And so it's this almost flip things around. Uh, and you'll see it. And they even believe in taking... Uh, he says the church it promotes the idea that the church should be involved in activism. And here's a Scripture that they use. I want to tell you how liberation theology uses the Scriptures for their own twisting, perverted sense of justice. Now go to Matthew 10.34 where Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And they use this as saying, this is a push for activism. You can blow up the Humvees because they hurt the environment. You can maybe kill some people. I don't know how far they go. But there's no, there's no right or wrong. It's not, it's not covered by the Word of God at all. That's a perversion. Jesus said that I'm going to set at variance um, a, like a daughter and her mother-in-law and brothers and sisters and parents will be divided over what? Over belief in me. Over the Gospel. Somebody's going to get born again and somebody's lost and their fellowship's going to be broken and one has, the lost man wants nothing to do with their saved brother now. And they turn him into the police and hate him. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about uh, social activism, but that's how it's perverted. That's why I'm saying we've got to know the Bible. We've got to know Jesus, first of all, and the Holy Ghost in us, and we need to know His Word. Because this is not the proper uh, interpretation of the Scriptures at all. And uh, it says, liberation theology has moved beyond the poor peasants in South and Central America, and in Haiti and South Africa. Uh, it says, but also in the United States, black liberation theology is preached in some churches, such as Jeremiah Wright's Trinity United Church of Christ, uh, a, a related theological movement it is feminist liberation theology, which views women as the oppressed group that must be liberated. Well, if anybody needs liberation, we all need liberation from sin. And a woman is no less a sinner than a man. Just if some people have a foot up in, in society, absolutely. That will always be, as long until Jesus Christ reigns on the earth, there will be people that have it up, one foot up on somebody else. But he doesn't make it our commission or mission, nor was it his, to go try to fix all that. Jesus even told uh, two men came to him and said, uh, one, one man came to him and said, Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus, Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth. He says, man, who made me judge over you? Jesus said that. Who made me judge over you? This is an earthly matter. You know what he said to the man? You beware of covetousness. A man's life doesn't consist in the, 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 the wealth that he possesses. But liberation theology, Rob, take from this one, give it to that, until we think it's all fair. Well, it's never going to be all fair. You know what? Also, praise God. Would you agree? Praise God we don't get what we deserve. Because if everyone, the poor, rich, whoever, black, white, male, female, got what we deserve, we'd be in hell now. Because the wages of sin is death. So anything this side of hell is a blessing. And we've got a lot more than this side of hell. We've got everything that God has promised for us in this life and the life to come. So we just need to watch that. The Bible does teach Christians to care for the poor. I'm not saying we scoot out from under that. I'm not opposite of the, the liberation theology. I'm different, though. We want to be biblical. I'm not a, you understand what I'm saying? I believe we are to help the poor. Please understand that. But, but they believe that God favors 
the poor over the wealthy or one group of oppressed people over maybe a group that's oppressing them. God will deal with the oppressors. Did He deal with Pharaoh in Egypt when He was oppressing the Jews? Absolutely. Did He deal with every nation or king that's ever not known Him and oppressed people? Doesn't He even say in the book of James, He goes, you rich man, you, you uh, keep back, people earn their wages and you keep it back and you don't pay them. And they need it and they're hungry and they're poor and they worked in your fields and brought your... your uh, crops down and brought them into your barns for you and you held back their wages and didn't pay them and they're powerless to get it from you, God's going to judge them. He doesn't say, all right, now get your pitchfork and stab them. I mean, honestly, that's almost to where the point where a lot of this is getting. We need to be godly. We need to be biblical. We need to be Christian. What is justice? It's what God says is just. Amen? And I'm going to be bringing this to a close, but... Uh, he is a father. The Lord is a father to the fatherless. The Lord defends the, the widows and, and the poor. He does that. And we're Christians. We're here in the name of Christ. We're His representatives and ambassadors on earth. We're going to do that. We absolutely should be doing that. But it's not our primary overriding focus. We don't throw everything out. Our commission is the great commission that Jesus said, go into all the world and preach this gospel. Teach men to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that believes not is going to be damned. And lo, I'm with you. Jesus didn't try to stop the, the uh, whatever was going on, the slavery of His day or the, or the different social things of His day that were wrong. They were clearly wrong. If a man gives his life to Christ and if a society becomes a Christian society, slavery goes out the window. Holding back the wages of somebody that worked for me goes out the window. I'm going to pay him. And I'll pay him fairly. You understand what I'm saying? It, it goes, Jesus takes care of that. You're trying to bring social justice to a fallen world. The whole thing's going down. The whole Titanic's sinking. And we're worried about, well, this, this lawn chair looks in the wrong place on the deck of the Titanic. The whole thing's plunging. Get, lift up Jesus and, and get people out by faith in Jesus Christ. What I think is just is not what God says is just. And what some church movement calls justice is not what the Almighty calls justice. He's just. He knows how to save the sinner. He's uh, had to uh, rebuke the sinner, rebuke his child that's not, not maybe not being compassionate the way we should. The Lord knows how to do it. Amen. And I'll just say this. He desires these attributes within His people. It's not just an attribute of God. Certainly, He wants us to be this way. I'm going to read two Scriptures and then we'll close with one more. But it says that David, I'll just read this from 2 Samuel 8, David reigned over all Israel. And David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. Now he is like, a, in that little snapshot, certainly not in his whole life, in that little snapshot, that would be Christ-like. That would be a type of Christ. When Jesus comes back, he's going to reign perfectly. No, nothing will go unjust in his kingdom. Nothing will go overlooked, unnoticed. He's not going to take a bribe to help this wealthy person and hurt the poor person. He's just not going to do it. He's, he's perfect. And he knows all things. With David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. Um, one more scripture. When the Lord was speaking to Abraham in that chapter we, we read earlier, uh, or quoted about him, uh, right before Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, For I know that I know uh, him, Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham all that which he has spoken of him. He desires that quality and trait in his people. Old Testament, we're part of the New Testament, the blood of Jesus. It's not something we're estranged to justice or the plight of the poor. But we, it all has to be biblical. It has to be in its right place and done the right way. Or we make ourselves God as reign and ruler of what's just. I'm taking from you. I'm going to give it to this person. I'm putting you in prison because you oppressed him. And You know what I mean? And we become the judge and jury of everything. It's very perverted. And the Lord never called us to do that. He called us to live this life, preach this gospel, and, and to be His representatives on the earth. And I'm going to close with this first. And William, if you're doing an altar, if you would come on up. I know it's been a little different this morning, but I'm very thankful in closing that we have a God that truly is just. 
if it was left to, let's say Eric came up with his sense of justice and Stacy heard on any one event or social issue or anything, and then I came up with my own and Reynolds came up with, we'd be all over the place. We might be similar, but a little different here and there. Maybe the punishment should be a little more severe or less. We don't have that with God. He nails it. He's perfect. He gets it right every time, all the time. He knows what's right. He sees what's right. He does what's right. For a lost man that rejects Him, for the saved man that knows Him, for a saved man that strays from Him, and he has to rebuke Him and chastise Him and bring Him back. For the poor, for the rich, for the, the crooked, He knows and He judges perfectly. And all that judgment has been committed uh, into the hands of the son, His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read this Scripture. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Capital B, speaking about Christ. Okay, he's prophesied way back in Jeremiah. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. It's not the bumper stickers and it's not the billboards and it's not joining a movement. It's coming to know Christ and coming to obedience to Him and, and part of, being part of His kingdom, which is on this earth now and going to, I mean, not, not on this earth now in its fullness. I mean, in the person of the believer. I don't believe in amillennialism or anything like that or kingdom now. I'm saying that His kingdom's going to come. He's going to judge righteously and justly. And until He does, there won't be. And we ought not concern ourselves overly with that. We need to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and walking in obedience to Him. Amen? Can we just pray and thank the Lord? I guess I want to end by saying I pray I pray you received it like a, I know it's a little different, but maybe like a warning of what's going on in our day. Uh, there's things happening in uh, different Christian denominations that are very blatant and, and ungodly and they're wanting you to repent of your grandparents' sin because they owned a slave way back then. I'm born again. He's forgiven me of all of my sins. You understand what I'm saying? I'm walking with the Lord and going on with Jesus. And um, it's, a, it's just a, a t to be on guard because they're seductive and they look like this is very Christian. I want to be part of that. And then if you're not part of it, the criticism that comes, don't you believe in being just? You, you, you believe in owning slaves or you know something like this? And it's just crazy. Now I just want to sit right here, y'all. This is where I want to stay. I want to live here. I want to die here. I want to feast on this. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to get up and be glad that I'm saved every day. And if He's driving by and He leads me to, to give my 10 bucks or or what, 100 bucks or whatever to a homeless person or a friend in need or a drunkard or whatever it may be in the name of Jesus. And say, can I also tell you, you know, this, this I always tell people, when I, I'll see people sit out in front of the Home Depot and sometimes talk to them about the Lord and give them, they say, I'm hungry, man. I want something to eat. I'll go to the McDonald's right there, bring it back a meal. <clears throat> I've done it before and talked to them about Jesus. I said, you know what? By, by 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock tonight, you're going to be hungry again. But can I tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ who satisfies the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness? I don't know what to that man to provide for him the rest of his life, but if I'm going to show them the kindness of Jesus, maybe he'll listen to what I say and be an expression of God's love when I tell him about the Lord and, and the Savior that came. Maybe he'll listen because I didn't just walk by him and throw a track at him. Maybe God at that time had me to buy him a happy meal or whatever and bring it to him. And so... Uh, just receive it as God would give it to you this morning. It's just a trend in the church and we need to be careful of it. And at the same time, be very thankful that we serve a God who is just. Jesus committed Himself to His Father and we are to commit, we said we have Him as an example that we should follow in His steps. I want to commit myself to Him who judges righteously. And then I want to see things the way He sees them. What is, what is it He would have me to be involved in? How would He have me to meet this need? You understand what I'm saying? I'm not running around like a chicken with my head cut off, don't know what, you know, putting out every little fire of injustice in this life. I'm walking closely with my Lord and Savior. Jesus said, I only do the things I see my Father doing. I always say the things I hear my Father saying. He didn't go to every community and find everything that was wrong and fix it. He laid down His life to be the Savior of the world. He preached the truth. In perfect obedience to His Father. And He finished everything that He was supposed to do. And I believe we can live that way as well. Father, we just come before You this morning.
you know, I'll just can tell you this is the, our altar call. I know we're cramped. I know we're crowded. It is what it is at this time. But please try to find your private place with the Lord, whether it's turning around at, at your chair, whether it's walking around this room behind me, <clears throat> whatever. Try to find your place with God and just see what He would have for you to lay hold of this morning from this sermon and from this Word. And Father, we thank You, dear God, that we serve a just and righteous King. In the first Scripture we read, righteousness and truth are the habitation of Your throne. Justice and judgment are met together. They've kissed mercy and truth in Jesus Christ. God, You, you deal with us very kindly and with incredible love and compassion, mercy and forgiveness. And I thank You, Lord, that when we commit a cause to You, we've been wronged in some way. Somebody's lied about us. Someone's gossiped about us. Someone's robbed us or, or something, Lord, that we can commit that into Your hands. And we know that it's safe. It's in safekeeping. You're going to judge it righteously and rightly. And I thank You, Lord, for that. It's a comfort to know that our God is not only holy and powerful, but He's also just and does what's right and will always do what's right and we we'll never have to worry about it. We can go to sleep and know you've got it under control. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.